Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. Acting out of fear, we are prone to do terrible and foolish things. But what happens when God gets our love right? What does love have to do with fear? You're listening to Making the Crooked Straight, A Savior Who Calms Our Fears by Rev. Peter Yonker. So we continue our Advent series our Advent series on making the crooked straight. So the ways in which Jesus coming straightens out the broken things in our life. And all of these broken things are addressed by the prophet Isaiah. And today, as you probably caught on, we're thinking about how God comes to straighten out, how Jesus comes to straighten out our fears. Um, And before I read the passage, which is Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 17, let me say a, a few words about what's going on in this passage. As I read, you'll hear that the prophet Isaiah encounters King Ahaz and has a conversation with King Ahaz. Now, I wonder how many of you have a sense of who King Ahaz is or what kind of a king Ahaz is. You remember, if if you grew up in the church, you probably read the book of Kings. And in the book of Kings, it tells us how the kings were. He has a brief biography of every single king, and it says whether they were a good king or a bad king, whether they followed the Lord or where they didn't follow the Lord. So do you remember? Is Ahaz one of those kings who followed the Lord, or is he one of those other kinds of kings? Well, I'll save you looking it up. It's in 2 Kings 16, and here's what it says. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike his father, David, it wasn't really his father, it was his great, 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 great grandfather. Unlike his father, David, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did not do what was right. Now, I want to say that's an understatement because Ahaz was the king in Judah who made his children pass through the fire, Second Kings tells us means he sacrificed some of his own children to pagan gods to appease them. So he wasn't just sort of neutral about God. He was someone who was absolutely against the Lord and his ways. So keep that in mind as we come to this text and as we read about this encounter. Isaiah 7 verses 1 through 17. When Ahaz son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah... King Rezin of Aram, which is modern-day Lebanon, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. They lose. Now, that was, that's sort of an anticipation of what's going to happen, that Jerusalem will survive the assault of Aram and Israel, but now we're going back in time to before the assault happens. Now, the house of David was told Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, Israel. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shir Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. And say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, 
because the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia, Aram and Ephraim and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus. And the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to even be a people. And the head of Ephraim is, is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, house of David. Is it not enough that you try the patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of God himself? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. And we will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, he's about two years old, the land of those two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time like any since Ephraim has broke away from Judah. He will bring the kings of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. When Isaiah met Ahaz by the upper pool, Ahaz hadn't slept in days. His eyes were red. He looked haggard. His mind had been spinning ever since he heard the news about Aram and Israel, Aaron and Ephraim, making an alliance against Judah. He heard that the armies of these two nations were sweeping down towards Jerusalem to lay siege to the city, to burn it down, to take its stuff, to pillage it. And ever since then, he couldn't sleep. He paced the halls of the palace at night. He snapped at his servants. He snapped at his family. And most of all, he worried about the defenses of the city. He walked the walls obsessively during the day, making sure that every stone was in place so that they were strong. He kept calling in the generals and asking them about troop readiness. And what he was doing when Isaiah found him, he kept checking the city's water system to make sure that there'd be an adequate water supply when the siege finally came. Ahaz was afraid, sore afraid. As our text says, His heart was shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. And it's not hard to see why he was afraid. He he was afraid of losing his stuff. Ahaz liked being king. He liked living in a palace. He liked having people who would come to him and bow before him and make him the center of attention. He liked his palace. He liked his summer home on the Mediterranean. He liked his concubines. He liked his wine cellar. And... To be fair to Ahaz, he also liked his life. Ahaz knew what other kings did when they conquered you. They made an example of the ruler. They would put you up in front of of all your people. They'd probably torture you very publicly, and then they'd kill you, and then they'd hang you up for everyone to see. So it's no wonder Ahaz was so afraid. 
So Isaiah finds Ahaz and comes to him with a word for his fear. A word from the Lord designed to calm him down. He says, be careful, be calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. These kings that you're so afraid of, they're just men. They're from human cities. They have human power. I can take care of them. I will deliver you. And, and just to prove it, I'll give you a sign. Ask for any sign you want. It can be something in the heavens. It can be something on the ground. Just, just ask for a sign and I will show you that I will deliver you from these men. How does Ahaz react? He says, I will not ask for a sign. I will not put the Lord, my God, to the test. Now, how do you hear those words? When Ahaz says, I will not put the Lord my God to the test, how do you hear those words? Now, you might hear them as pious, right? You might hear them as humility. You might hear them as Ahaz saying, oh, who am I to ask for a sign from God? And, and that's possible. But given what we know about Ahaz, right? Given what King says about Ahaz, I don't think this is piety from the king. I think the king just says those words to get Isaiah out of his hair. Isaiah, no, I'm not, I'm not going to ask for a sign from the Lord, please. This invisible God who I never see. This God who's allowed Judah to become so weak that, that I'm sitting here worried about being conquered. This God who promises all these things and I never see them. No, no thank you, Isaiah. I'm not asking for a sign from him. You prophets are just wasting my time. Leave me alone. I got more important things to do. I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz pushes aside the hope offered by God and his prophet, and he chooses to address his fear by purely human means, political means, military means, economic means. And when he tries to deal with his fears with purely human means, Ahaz ends up doing foolish and terrible things, which is exactly what fear does, right? Fear when we deal with it on a purely human scale, we're prone to do terrible and foolish things in reaction to the things we're afraid of. And in Ahaz's case, his foolish thing is that he makes an alliance with Assyria. You can read about that in 2 Kings 16 as well. Ahaz knows that Assyria is the most powerful nation, so he goes and he bows the knee before Tiglath-Pileser, who is the king of Assyria. And if you read 2 Kings, it looks like he doesn't just bow the knees before Tiglath-Pileser. It sounds like he bows the knees before the Assyrian gods too. Because he goes to the Assyrian temple and during a worship service, he's so impressed by the altar to the Assyrian god that he has someone make a copy of it, a design copy of it, and he brings that back to Judah and he has a replica made in Jerusalem. And he takes that replica of the Assyrian altar and he puts it in the temple of the Lord, right in the middle of the temple of the Lord and pushes the altar to the Lord off to the side. It's a perfect physical representation of where Ahaz's heart is. Give me those macho, those muscular Assyrian gods. Forget about the Lord. His alliance with Assyria actually works for a short while. For a little while, because he's allied with Assyria, his enemies don't bother him. But ultimately, Ahaz has made a, devil, a deal with the devil. And when you make a deal with the devil, it always works in the short term. You always get power in the short term. But in the long term, he wants your soul. So it's not too long before Assyria in all its might is at the doors of Jerusalem, ready to burn the place to the ground. 
You can read about that in Isaiah 37 and 38 and 39. Fear dealt with only in human, political, economic, military terms, ends up causing Ahaz to do a foolish thing. And that's what fear does to all of us. Drives us to make desperate and foolish choices. Which is probably why the most common command, as I'm sure you all know, in the Bible is, do not be afraid, do not fear. According to some people, it's actually in Scripture 366 times, which would mean that it's in there once for every day of the year, including leap year days. Do not be afraid, God says to us over and over again, because fear makes us do foolish things. Fear of losing power causes nations to go to destructive wars that kill thousands and displace thousands more. Fear of looking bad of losing face causes otherwise sensible people to pile up lie upon lie upon lie. Fear of aging and losing power makes middle-aged men enter into foolish affairs. Fear of being alone causes otherwise sensible women to stay with abusive partners even though it's slowly killing them. Fear is a powerful driver of human behavior. So much of what makes us miserable is the way we kowtow to our fears. Which is also why people who want to manipulate us, people who want us to get us to do what they want us to do, play on our fears. You see it in commercials all the time. The young woman is shown going out on a date with a handsome young man, but midway through the date, he notices white flakes on her shoulder. Uh-oh, dandruff, he calls for the check. Should have used head and shoulders. Plays on our fears. Or, of course, political ads. Every political ad on all sides shows us the opposing candidate in an unflattering light and makes it sound that if we elect this person, everything will fall apart. They play on our fears. Fear is a major contributor to the misery of our lives. And which is why the Bible says, don't be afraid, over and over and over again. But when you really dig down, the Bible's message about fear is a little bit more complicated than simply saying, don't be afraid. Because not only are there many, many times where the Bible says, don't be afraid, there are also other times where the Bible calls us towards fear. There are many times where the Bible tells us to be on our guard, to increase the level of our fears. Let me give you just a few examples of that. In Mark 8, Jesus tells his disciples to be afraid of pride. Watch out for the yeast of the teachers of the law and of Herod, he says. Watch out for their pride. Be afraid of it. Luke chapter 12, he tells us, tells his disciples, to be afraid of greed. Watch out for all kinds of greed, he says, because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be afraid of greed. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to be worried, to be afraid of false teachers. Watch out for false prophets in sheep's clothing, says Jesus. So there's all these other times where Jesus says, be afraid. So the Bible has this two-sided message. Don't be afraid, be afraid. When you start exploring this tension between how the Bible has be afraid and don't be afraid, that's when we start to get to the heart of how Jesus 
straightens out our fears. A number of years ago, Michael Gulker came to talk at LaGrave for Growing You, and he said something that I found very helpful. He pointed out that underneath every single human fear, there is a love. Every one of our human fears has a love which is just beneath the fear. I'm afraid of the rising crime mates in my city and in my neighborhood, and I go and buy new deadbolts for all my doors because of that fear. Why am I doing that? Because of a deeper love. I love my family. I love my neighborhood. I want it to be protected. I'm afraid of conflict and bad decisions at work. I think that my bosses are making terrible decisions, so I complain to them and tell them that I think they're doing the wrong thing. Why do I do that? Because I love my company, and I love my job, and I want it to go well. Underneath that fear, there's a love. Maybe I complain loudly at church, write a letter to the council that kids today don't know their theology, they don't know their Bible, what's going on? We got to ratchet that up. Why do I write that? Because I love the church and its children and I want them to thrive. Find a person who expresses a big fear and just below the surface of that big fear, at the root of that big fear, you will find a big love. So getting your fears right, getting your fear straight, is all about getting your love straight. Which, of course, is exactly what Jesus says. It's all about getting your love straight. And when you get your love straight, you'll get your fear straight. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. If you get those loves straight, if those loves are at your center, your fears will straighten out right behind them. In fact... When the Bible calls you to fear the Lord, as it so often does, what it's really doing is calling you to love the Lord, because that fear is the kind of fear that comes out of that deep love. You know, you really, really love your parents. You want to please them. You're afraid of letting them down. That's the kind of fear that we're talking about. Getting your love straight will lead to getting your fears straight. Maybe you have a fear of confrontation. You're kind of a shy person, and you hate to speak out. But when you really, really love God and really, really love your neighbors, and you see something out there in the world which is so clearly against God's ways and is so clearly hurting your neighbor, even though you have that fear, you will go and you will say something and you will do something because your fear of God and your love of God will overcome that fear of your speaking. It'll make your fear straight. Maybe you were really nervous about death. Maybe you hate hospitals. Lots of people hate hospitals, afraid of hospitals. You hate to go into hospital and see all the sickness and smell the smells. But then your unchurched neighbor suddenly comes down with terminal cancer and is in a hospital bed. Even though you're afraid of that place, because you love God and because you love your neighbor, you go to the hospital and you sit at his bedside and you hold his hand and you pray for him in the name of Jesus. Because your love straightens out that fear. See, and this is Ahaz's problem. When it comes down to it, he just doesn't love God enough, if at all. What he loves is his stuff, his power. And so he chooses an alliance with Assyria over the hope of the living God. But now notice what God does. When the fear of the nations has completely overwhelmed Israel and its king, 
when, when no one in Jerusalem is hoping for anything, when no one in Jerusalem has any, seems like they have any faith anymore except for the prophet, when no one's expecting anything, when no one's working for the kingdom, when people are so beat down that they're not even willing to ask for a sign, God provides his own sign. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. And the time, by the time he's old enough to know right from wrong, so about two years old, by the time this kid even can start thinking, by the time he's, a, 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 he's weaned, those kings that you're so afraid of, they will be gone. I will have wiped them away and their threat will be ended and that child will be eating curds and honey because this city will be prospering. Ahaz, you don't believe that I'm here? I'll show you. I'm Emmanuel, God with you. You don't believe I can do anything? I will show you. I will do more than you can ask or imagine. When we refuse to act, when we are unable to act, when our faith grows dim, God lights a candle. God acts. God does the same thing even more strenuously and wonderfully 750 years later. Once again, God's people are surrounded by enemies. Once again, hope is dim. Expectations are low. Once again, the only solutions anyone's looking for are economic solutions, military solutions, political solutions. But then, in a room in a town not too far away from where Ahaz was when he was walking the walls, another messenger of the Lord, this time an angel, comes to a young woman in her room. The angel says to Mary, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Emmanuel, the Lord is with you. Mary, you shall conceive even though you are a virgin. And you shall have a son and you will call him Jesus. And he'll be great. He'll be the son of the most high and he'll sit on the throne of David. And he will save this world and he will save his people from their sin. In the middle of a world where the flame of faith was low, in the middle of a place where everything was dark and no one expected anything, God lit a candle in the middle of that darkness and that candle became the light of the world and it filled the world and it changed the world. The light shone in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. The darkness tried to swallow that light, tried to swallow that light in death, but Jesus overcame that too through the power of the Father. And that light still shines. And if you and I keep that light in front of us, put that light at the center of our lives and keep our eyes focused on Jesus. His love will fill us. His joy will fill us. His hope will fill us. And that will straighten out all our fears. And we will get up every day ready for the adventure of faith, which means going out into a world where there are lots of scary things, where we are generally afraid, genuinely afraid of many, many things, but we love God so much that every single day we go into fearful places and we light candles of hope in the name of Jesus our Lord. I was thinking about the angel coming to Mary and the contrast of that with Isaiah coming to Ahaz. Isaiah comes to Ahaz and makes this announcement, and the king is an educated man, knows all the old stories, should know better. What does Ahaz do? He dismisses the prophet. The angel comes to Mary, marries this young girl, probably doesn't know much of anything. How does Mary react when the angel makes his announcement? I am the Lord's servant. 
may it be to me as you have said. This Advent, the darkness is deep. There are lots of things to be afraid of. And our candle is small. But as we light these candles, as we go out into this world, may we remember the strength of our Lord. And may we say with Mary, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you know all the fearful things that cloud our hearts. And the reason we're sitting here today before your word, the reason we're listening to your word and singing these songs and saying these prayers is because we want your love and your fear to be the center of our hearts. In this Advent, rekindle hope in our hearts, Lord, and send us out into the world, send us to our jobs, send us to our families as people who light candles of hope in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.